0: You hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop. How about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking queer money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Ever think to yourself, I'll just go to the gym tomorrow. Uh, Always. (laughs) Ever buy something and you think it's going to make me really happy for a really long time. Yes. Ever think, oh, one more drink. That's okay. hmm Ever think that what you really need is a weekend with Netflix on the couch with Ben and Jerry and a bag of potato chips?
1: And my husband and my puppies almost every weekend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All of this only to find out that You're not really that happy after you made the decision, only to feel maybe even worse than you felt before. Mm, Yes. All right. That's because all of us are horrible at predicting what makes us truly happy. That's according to Dr. Randy Patterson, author of the book, How to Be Miserable 40 Strategies You Already Use. And he is joining us on Queer Money Podcast, episode 366 today to share how we can break these cycles.
1: Well, that's great. This continues our ongoing series about, with Capital One on financial well-being. And don't forget to stick around to the very end to find out how you could possibly win a free copy of Dr. Patterson's brilliant book. So let's get on with the show.
0: You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a
1: rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. So Welcome, Dr. Randy Patterson, to the Queer Money Podcast. We're looking forward to this meaty discussion.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for reaching out. So to kick off the, the conversation... Are humans, homo sapiens, just prone to depression or even mild depression? And the reason I ask that is because, you know, for those of us in developed countries, we've never lived in safer, more comfortable, more abundant times than we are now. And in your book, you say, quote, as the data on life satisfaction, depression, and suicide all attest, no amount of wealth or good fortune can entirely prevent misery. So what's the disconnect here? We apparently, live in amazing times, but a lot of us are struggling emotionally.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean... In my book, one of the things that I'm talking about is, is that if you took a cave person or a person from almost any point in human history and dumped them in this culture, they'd think, oh, my gosh, I've died and gone to heaven. There's food in the fridge. Nobody's trying to kill me, at least most of the time. You know, things are actually pretty good by the standard of almost all of human history. And yet we have what, what we think of as a, as a mental health crisis. Like, what's that about? And one of the aspects of it is probably an evolutionary adaptation in that thinking that you're in danger would lead you to try and be safer, You know, stay away from the saber-toothed tigers and things like that. So we have a little bit of a cognitive bias to look for the bad stuff. So if that's safe and that's safe and that's safe and that's safe and there is a saber-toothed tiger, we're going to be paying most of our attention to the saber-toothed tiger. So we have this bias to look for things wrong in our lives and many of us are familiar with that either in our own minds or with friends where we think you know what your life is actually pretty good don't see what the big problem is but they're really really focused on that one thing you know the neighbor built that fence one foot over the property line how
1: <laughs> dare they and it's
2: really tearing them up
0: have you been in our backyard recently?
2: Because <laughs> we were just
0: having this conversation the other day. <laughs> so, yeah, you could
2: totally make that, you know, your life if you want.
0: Right. Yeah. What you're talking about here kind of reminds me of this, I don't know who said this, but, or where it came from, this idea of fear, false evidence appearing real. And that's kind of, I think what you're Kind of maybe a little bit of what you're talking about here is our brain kind of tricks us into this idea of let's focus on the thing that is maybe the most scary, the most threatening, the most worrisome, and if we only have one, then evidently we, met, we make it really big.
1: <laughs> right?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit like sort of the allergy theory. Whereas if you keep a if you keep a child in an absolutely sterile environment where there's really, they don't they never get to eat dirt or any of that stuff that children have a tendency to do, then the um, immune system, which is looking around for dangerous stuff, gets more and more sensitized. And similarly, if you put people in a pretty safe culture, generally, let's not exaggerate that point. But... I think we get more and more sensitized to the possibility that somebody doesn't like me on Facebook or Instagram becomes this major trauma. Yeah.
1: Right. Do you think, you know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking to myself, you know, we're almost at a point, at least in in, in American culture, where we're sort of almost making up boogeymen that don't exist. Kind of, I think, when I think about some of the network, the cable news stations, And they're always trying to say, there's a war on this, there's a war on that. We're supposed to be afraid of this, that, and the other thing. Do you think maybe that our evolutionary condition, coupled with the media trying to get clicks and eyeballs, is maybe sort of exacerbating the mental health crisis? And that's kind of why it seems to be some of an explosion?
2: Yeah, I, I do think that, actually. I think back to the the 1960s when we had like 20 minutes of news at 11 o'clock and that seemed to be just fine. And there was rather a lot going on in the 1960s. Right. And yet, you know, we didn't need a 24-hour news channel. So now we've got them and they need us to look. And how best to get people to look? Well, let's set off the fire alarm. Let's say, you know, there's this horribly dangerous thing that's happening and and really stress that you know, occasionally people talk about, oh, well, let's have a good news channel. You know, the reality is those are going to fail because they're not attuned to human psychology, which is find the dangerous stuff.
1: Yeah. So it's, well, there's always one human interest story at the very end of the news segment, so you can go to bed and hopefully sleep a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. I, I also wonder if this is part
0: of the reason why the current president of the opposite party is always the worst president that has ever existed. But then when you... Fast forward five, ten, fifteen years, all of a sudden that president actually did some good things. They're still doing some good things. They were friends with people that we would like to be friends with or that we think are good people. And all of a sudden they're not the boogeyman, right? They're not that this ogre current situations, I think, aside. But maybe I'm just <laughs> I'm just reinforcing the bias that I have right there.
2: Far <laughs> for me to imply that there aren't a few ogres out there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there is that polarization and we try to say, you know, well, I'm, I'm the sainted figure and, and, and this other person is, is the devil in effect. And I think to some extent that there's a childish aspect to that, that finding the middle where we can say, well, this person actually has some good points, but you know, how are we going to work that through? You know, we think this other factor is somewhat more important. So we're, we're pushing that. Being able to find and address the middle and address areas of commonality, it's not a big vote getter, but it is a way of talking to adults and pretending that people are adults.
1: <laughs> Don't talk to me like an adult. <laughs> Above my head. People, people resist it, you know. <laughs> so when we're feeling fear, we're feeling depression, we're feeling anxiety, you say in your book, what feels right when we're miserable is what feeds the misery, not what feeds us, and you continue referencing in in the book Daniel Gilbert in his two thousand book stumbling on happiness. Human beings are remarkably poor at guessing what will make them happy in the future. David and I fall into this trap all the time. Like we don't feel well, we're lethargic, we're under the weather. All we emotionally, all we want to do is lie on the couch, eat a bag of chips or popcorn, or I'm going to get a pint of ice cream. When that's the exact opposite of what I should do. Why are we so bad at doing what we're supposed to do? What's good for us? And why do we keep gravitating to thing that's actually making us miserable?
2: Well, I mean, this, this whole area that Gilbert talks about is the field of hedonic forecasting, which sounds like, oh, my gosh, we just lost your entire audience. How boring is this?
1: We've talked about um, it before, actually, we on the show. We, we have <laughs> oh, talked about have. Right, hedonic. Hedonic. Hedonic, hedonic treadmill. <laughs>
2: Yeah. But this is the idea that most of the decisions we make, including am I going to sit on the couch and eat all that ice cream? Is based on a prediction that this will make me happy. And, and you can imagine, this is a great area to research because it's so easy. You put a decision in front of people and say, pick one. What do you think? Like, how happy do you think you'll be if you buy the Ferrari or whatever? Then they buy the Ferrari and you can measure it. You can measure it. It's, it's, it's stupidly easy research to do. And it turns out that despite the fact that you're making hundreds of these decisions every day, people are terrible at this. They're (laughs) awful. We're pathetic at it. It's really, in a sense, the the failure of behavioral theory, which would suggest if you do something over and over again, gradually it should shape towards, you know, we're doing the right thing. Turns out, not at all. No, (laughs) we're, we're, we're lousy. I think part of the problem is contrasting short-term benefits versus long-term benefits. The moment you stick that spoon with ice cream into your mouth, you actually feel pretty good. It's glorious. Yeah. <laughs> For him. Yeah. You might notice that that fades out over time. The last spoonful of ice cream, it's like, oh, I don't really want this, but this only it doesn't make sense to put this back in the freezer. Oh. But the longer term is, as the name suggests, longer. And in the longer term, it's often not so good. So the moment you say, yes, I'll have the 13th beer, we think, oh, great. And then the next day, which lasts longer than the 13th beer did, it's not so great. And we're not so thrilled. So do you
1: think that that's a failure in behavioral psychology Or are we all struggling to counteract the response from marketing and media, constantly telling us that we'll be happier and better and prettier and skinnier and all this other stuff if we buy this, that, and the other thing. So not only do we have this innate challenge as humans, but we also have this whole industry and it's scientists and experts trying to make us feel unworthy and unhappy unless we have the next thing. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today.
2: Yeah. In a way, I think behaviorists would say, actually, this is a reinforcement of behavioral theory because we go for the instant gratification. and reinforcement is mostly what works in the few seconds after you make that decision. So the short-term thing is more powerful than the long-term outcome. But in addition, you're absolutely right. We have this huge network of really well-paid people whose entire job is to influence your decision-making, not necessarily for your welfare, more for their pocketbook. And so we're social beings and we naturally pay attention to that. And a lot of the advertising is kind of, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, but the word insidious comes to mind. You know, it's just sort of background and it slips past our critical faculties and it becomes kind of sensible that that thing that was just advertised 47 times. It's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, maybe a side question here, since this is the queer money podcast. Yeah. Do you do you think that in that kind of framework that we as LGBT people are maybe more susceptible to that because of the things that our brains have already been dealing with as we grow up on the outside? We grow up with these feelings of insecurity. We grow up with these feelings of fear because in some cases, our physical safety and the families that we grew up in or environment we grew up in?
2: Yeah. I mean, if we're told that we're inadequate, that we are on the outside, that we're not good enough, natural human tendency is to say, well, okay, let's at least try to become good enough. And some of us try to become good enough by trying to become heterosexual, which tends not to work out really well. But others say, okay, well, this is unchangeable. So instead, I'm going to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And this is where you tend to get this best little boy in the world phenomenon, right. where you never challenge anybody, you don't rock the boat, you try to work harder than everybody else, and you try to make up for it with surface things that make you look acceptable.
0: Folks, uh, you know, the Possessions
2: <laughs> that are the markers of success and right. the home that's the marker of success and so on.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, folks. This uh, for those of you listening. Doesn't this story sound familiar? I mean, it's the story that we have told on this podcast about over over. us, over and over and over again,
1: and many of our guests. So I think this is great. You, know, you mentioned great segue into the next question. You in the book, you quote Elaine DeButton from "Status Anxiety," and David. When and I went, when I read this quote, I had to repeat it to David, and we talked about it. Like it was. I I don't think I've ever few quotes pull me over, but this is great. The best way to stop appreciating something is to buy it.
2: Yeah. I, I gave that quote to a group of therapists. I was I, I do workshops training therapists in psychotherapy and, and I was giving this thing out. And I said, yes, the best way to stop appreciating something is to buy it. And there's a voice from the back of the room that says, or marry it. Yeah. That's not always true. Not always true. Not always
0: true. Yes. Present company excluded. Yes. Yeah.
2: But yeah, I mean, partly we're we're making these decisions based on a fantasy. And then disappointment is the deviation between the fantasy that you had and the outcome that you received. If you have no expectations, it's impossible to be disappointed. So disappointment is often more about the expectations than it is about what actually happens. But also there's the phenomenon of habituation, you know, the, like let's say, you go out and you think, oh, this great piece of art, this is lovely, it's so wonderful, I can't, you know, and you, you don't get it, and you're sitting at home, you're, you know, angsting, oh, somebody else is going, and you go out and you buy it, and you spend all kinds of money, and you put it on the wall, within a week, you don't notice it, it's gone. Yeah. It's gone. There are things on most people's walls and God knows in their drawers that they haven't looked at.
0: Hanging in their closets. They,
2: yeah, hanging <laughs> in their closets. They have not looked at They were desperate for this stuff. They haven't looked at it in years, right? right? As a matter of fact, if it was stolen, they might notice, oh, there's a gap there. But what
0: was that? This?
2: What was that? <laughs> they don't know.
1: To flip your analogy of the artwork on its head, David and I just moved from Las Vegas to Toledo, and one of our prints, however it was in the moving truck, has got a dent in it. So instead mm-hmm. of the print is kind of this, like pointing out.
0: The canvas was canvas. stretched. Stretched, yeah. So it has a permanent
1: indentation. indentation. And we can't yeah. fix it. We, and so we we hung it on the wall anyway, so we have something on the wall. And it's not a naked wall. But then the other day, David said to me, he goes, do you think we're ever going to replace that picture? <laughs> And I said, I actually forgot that it has a dent in it. (laughs) Ah,
2: Yeah, habituation, again. We tend to uh, forget that these things just sort of become part of the wallpaper, in effect.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder if this is also the reason why we are tempted to go out and buy the Louis Vuitton or the, the Manola Blon- Blonics, or however you say that word. The yeah, you got it right. <laughs> the, the thing, Because deep down inside, we know that there's this satisfaction we're going to get from everybody saying, oh, you've got a new bag, or you've got the new shoes, or you've got... And we get excited, but within a couple of weeks or maybe a month, it's become... Mundane to everybody else as well, and we're not getting those accolades for having the new thing, and that's why we need to have next season's version of that new thing in our life.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there. I mean, there's sort of the the momentary, the thrill of acquisition, if you like, but then there's the impact it has on others, and this is a very unreliable thing to base one's self-esteem on, obviously. Right. Right. But yeah, I mean, they say, "Oh, I love those shoes," but they don't say that every time. Every time you wear them, they don't say, "Oh, I love those shoes again." You know, it's just like, "No, those are his shoes." Whatever, they're not that focused on it. So there's that need to to get more. It can be almost like a, a like a slot machine. You know, you mentioned Las Vegas. I need I need to pull the the, the arm on the one arm bandit again to try and get that back to reclaim those accolades from others.
0: Now like, I know it, why my mom remodeled a room in our house almost once a year whether it was a bathroom or just painting the walls every, it was like every year she was looking at one of the rooms and changing it in some way.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, for some people that may work, but the question is, does it? Yeah. And is it something that you're tempted to do? Your instincts are telling you, I need those shoes. I need that countertop. Or is it something that experience has shown actually that, that does leave you quite satisfied. Yeah. You know, that bicycle that you bought actually did produce tremendous life satisfaction. Which is it? You know, is it more temptation or is it more experience?
1: So I'll ask you that question. Does it does it tend to work for people? Do you, in your in your work with your clients? Do you find that they're getting the satisfaction from the decisions that they're making or are they unhappy? dissatisfied with their decision-making and if they're dissatisfied what's how do we change the
2: script for ourselves
1: right
0: or learn yeah. from those who are <laughs> yeah
2: right yeah, yeah. well I, I mean let's face it if you're a clinical psychologist people don't say oh i'm really thrilled with my life let's go see a <laughs> clinical psychologist <laughs> you know so it it generally out. speaking something is not it's not going well often it's it's nothing to do with them i mean horrible things happen in people's lives but Something is not is not working, and what they're often doing is obeying what social media tells you to do. It's just like you learn need to learn to trust yourself. You need to learn to trust your instincts. Your instincts will guide you. Your heart will guide you. And mostly that's nonsense, right? That's, that's, that's not true. A little bit of maturity and, and growing older is recognizing the bits of your wiring that are reliable that, you know, my gut says I'll probably like this. And it turns out I do, Yeah, you know, but a much, much bigger aspect of that for most of us is recognizing where your wiring is frankly faulty and your instincts suck. They're terrible. They're routinely leading you in the wrong direction. Every addict in history has had to come to terms with this. My instincts are telling me have another beer. Yeah, And, there's always the wrong thing. Or overspender, exercise, for example. One of the things that I do at these workshops is I ask people, how many of you you know, are at work and you're thinking, oh, I can't wait because later I get to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. How many of you are like, and there's often one weirdo who puts up their hands. And I say, <laughs> you, know, you need to understand something. Your clients aren't like you. Your clients are like the rest of us because you're a little odd. You're strange. <laughs> Most of us are not working out because we can't keep ourselves out of the gym. We're working out because we know that later will we, we will be glad we did. Yeah. Right. So we have to override our impulses. And so I, I I sometimes startle clients by saying that a big part of what we need to do is to learn to distrust our instincts.
1: You have a great exercise in the book, where you you advise people to analyze what they want to do before, during, and after an event. And that if they're able to figure out, get it crystal clear on how they'll feel before, during, and after, that is sort of the prescription to figure out whether or not you should buy that thing or or do that activity.
2: Yeah. I mean, there might be some things in your life, and and, and people often have a hard time thinking of these, where beforehand you think, oh, I really want to do that. Cheering it, you love it. And afterwards you're glad you did it. Right? I think, you know, it takes a people a few minutes to come up with a few of those. There are definitely things, and I use the example of hitting your thumb with a hammer, like half an hour from now. Nobody looks forward to that. Nobody enjoys doing it. And nobody's glad they've done it. Right. <laughs> so people don't have a hard time resisting this. The problems come in where we're really tempted to do something and afterwards we're dissatisfied. You know, like, I want to buy that thing, so I rush out and buy it, and then I'm dealing with the debt for the next three years, and it's dragging my life satisfaction downward. So it goes from a positive to a negative. And other things are negative to a positive. For me, exercise is definitely one of those. The thought of going to the gym or this morning going going to the, the hotel Exercise room, do I want to do that? Not really, not really, but I will be glad I did afterwards. great, writing for me is the same thing. you know the prospect of sitting down and writing today ugh. while I'm writing, not bad, it's fine, whatever. having written is the most wonderful feeling on earth. It's great, <laughs> so it things go from negative to positive. And and the trick is to to recognize what are the activities that are like that in my life where it goes negative to positive or positive to negative, and how do I get myself to actually base my decision on how I will feel afterwards, because after is longer than before.
1: I think the challenge with spending and maybe even drinking and drugs and food with exercise, you've got a whole industry and everybody kind of knows. I should go to the gym. I know I've we've all experienced before. I don't want to go, but when I go, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And when I leave, more often than not, I'm really glad I did it. And everybody kind of understands that. And people talk about that on social media and television. And so that's kind of like almost ingrained in us. But with the other other vices, the alcohol, the drugs, and the spending, it's almost like there aren't industries saying, don't do as much of this. Don't do as much of that. Stop doing that at all altogether. It's almost like they're kind of encouraging you to do the things that you, you shouldn't do. How do we strengthen our constitution to a point when we, we know that thing is not going to make us happy in the long run? But how do we strengthen our constitution to a point where we're able to say, because I know it's not going to make me happy or because I know it's detrimental to my circumstances, I won't do that. How do you do that?
2: I think at the beginning, the answer is possibly you don't, but what you do is work on awareness. Say, okay, look, I've been doing this for years. I'm going to do it at least this month, you know, but I'm going to impose a little process here. I'm going to ask myself the last time I did this, how did it turn out? You know, the last time I went shopping and bought 300 bucks worth of, of stuff, how thrilled was I that I had that stuff, you know? let's go do it. Let's go do it. Let's not resist, right? We're just building awareness to begin with. And what happens is over time, I think you begin to almost dissociate from those influences and and be able to get past them. They they begin to lose their grip on you a little bit, but I don't think it ever gets to the point where it doesn't require force of will. I think one thing that people do that sabotages themselves is they say, from now on, You know, New Year's, you know, from this year, I'm not going to go on Twitter or, you know, whatever it is, you know, like whatever your thing is. This year, I'm not going to overspend. And I think that putting the horizon out or from now on, I'm going to exercise every day. No, you're not. Nobody does anything from now on. Instead, to be able to drag that horizon in and say, today, this is what I'm going to do. who are drinking too much i will say you know what you know like let's not think about not drinking right now but what would it be like to go out with friends or go to this dinner this tonight and make it your agenda not to drink that's it you know tomorrow whatever but this one time i'm just going to do it one time baby steps
1: yeah yes yeah
2: I think that's but those one are the, the actual, that's actually how it happens. Right. I mean, it's like, I don't drink tonight and I don't drink tomorrow night and I don't drink the night after that. It actually is in the moment.
0: Yeah. I think that's, isn't that one of the tenets of, of AA or those 12 step programs is one day at a time or something. I can't remember exactly what the saying is, but it's something like that. Um, just yeah. take it one day at a time.
2: Mm-hmm. It 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 absolutely is. Because if you think, okay, so let's see, I'm this age, I, life expectancy, oh, so about 40 years, okay, so 40 years of n- every single day never drinking, oh, gosh, I don't think I can do that. Right. No, you can't. You can't. Right. But you cannot not drink today. Right. Well, and, I
1: mean, you kind of, to your point about AA, you're... Yeah. Some of these behaviors, we've created these neural pathways that are so ingrained. You know, if, if, we're, if we're 40, 50 years old, and suddenly we want to change a habit that we've been participating in for 30, 40 years. How long does it take to change those neural pathways? In some cases, probably for some people, they never actually change it.
2: Well, it, it sort of depends on the habit. I mean, for some people smoking, they say, you know, like 20 years after I quit smoking, I still want a cigarette. Right. Yeah. You know, but the temptation is to think however long I had the bad habit, that's how long it's going to take to get rid of it. And I think for the most part, that's false. Generally speaking, people are able to change. Actually, because if if it actually is better for you, if you actually are getting better outcomes, that has a certain amount of power. Mm-hmm. And that's so it, it's better than you think. People who haven't exercised at all think, oh, my God, I, can, I, can, I might be able to get myself to the gym once. But regular, sort of like for good, I don't... I don't think so. What they often realize is the, the development of the habit, which is like, oh, okay, it's Wednesday at 8 a.m. I guess I'm going to the gym. That begins to happen quite quickly. Mm. We tend to think in our culture so much about skills and how important skills are, but I think habits are arguably more important.
0: I think, it's isn't it the, in the book Atomic Habits? I forgot who wrote that. But don't they talk about that the best way to get rid of a bad habit is replace it with a good one. Replace what you don't want to do with a habit of something that you do want to do.
2: Well, there's absolutely a good cause for doing that. You know, with somebody who's going to give up compulsive sex, if that's been an issue for them, that can be for some, or drinking or gambling, going to the casino every night, or, you know, whatever it is, or spending three hours on social media, you know, whatever. You're going to give that up. What are you going to do? You're going to sit on the couch with nothing to do in a vacuum for three hours? Right. No, that's that. nature abhors a vacuum. It's going to suck that activity back into it. Sooner or later, you're going to get bored. What you need to do is to crowd it out by imposing something else. What else are you going to do? If you're not drinking, what are you going to do? And really build that as a habit instead.
1: We're going to go bowling, John, right? David proposed to go bowling <laughs> to fill our vacuum. Both, uh,
2: gay men just recently out say, uh, you know, like oh, I need to make friends. You know, so so I'm, I'm going to go, <laughs> I'm going to go on grinder or or, or or scruff. It's like okay, well, that might be a certain kind of friend, but it's not necessarily <laughs> the you know most people there are not. That's not the kind of friendship that you probably need the most. Not to say that sex is, but fine but you need a group of friends yeah right and that's not why people are there mostly and and how do you do it oh i'm going to go to a bar this is a terrible idea because if you go up to a perfect stranger at a bar at least historically there's a message behind that it's and yeah. it's not i want to be your friend right. <laughs> necessarily so it's actually a force keeping people apart in gay bars and so i holy, whatever Whatever, in Vancouver, where... where You just took his side. I know. See, we're going to go bowling. (laughs) I totally took his side. He's exactly right. And and, and occasionally the client will say, oh, I don't want to bowl. And I I point out, it has nothing to do with the bowling. The the bowling is the plate on which the social interaction is served. It's nothing about bowling.
1: He's telling me that, hey, I'm right. <laughs> All right. This
0: is like the first time in a long
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know we were gonna get free couples counseling on in this interview. <laughs> hey, <thank you. laughs>
2: Vancouver is 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 not the coldest part of the country. I mean, we're today apparently it, it snowed a huge amount, and in Vancouver this means utter chaos, right? Because the city is completely unprepared for this. But that we have a curling thing. Nobody in Vancouver curls. Heterosexual friends of mine wanted to join a curling league, and, this, and they they go and they say, "Well, there is there is one curling league that still has some openings on Sunday. It's the biggest curling league in Vancouver, but it's the gay league." And they said, "Fine, whatever." They joined the gay league, had a great time, and at curling you look at I mean, if you've ever seen this, yeah. this is. Shuffleboard in the cold. I mean, it, like, <laughs> why, why, why? would anybody do this? Do this? <laughs> it has nothing to do with curling. That's the plate. Yeah, right? yeah. it has to do with the social interaction. Kind that's that works that's together. for people recently out of the closet. That's how you get a social network is by doing something with other people. And what it is, nobody cares. Doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. You know, I will say I, I love that you bring this up because one of the things that John and I have noticed is the explosion of intramural sports leagues around, it's at least in, in the US, anything from you know volleyball, kickball, racquetball. I love the fact that this is happening, that we have found our way out of the bars and into other forms of a lifestyle that can, you know, one of the things that John and I probably one of the reasons why we didn't meet too many friends in the bars because it was always loud so loud that you had to yell at somebody to be able to have a conversation right or you went outside with all the smokers and then you came back smelling like smoke so the fact that we are creeping out into doing some other things is I think is really a positive move for our community because maybe we're practicing something that's not part of your 40 strategies to be miserable.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean people used to, you know, look back and think, oh, you know, the community is dying because of these online apps. You know, it was so much you know more wonderful. Before that, look, I mean, you're trying to meet either friends or something else, whatever. In an atmosphere, it's so dark you can't see them, and it's so loud you can't hear them. Like, right. <laughs> like this is the worst environment <laughs> to try to meet anybody for anything. So yeah, I mean there are there are these other things. And it, I think that that's more. General than just America. I mean, certainly it's widespread in Canada, but I'm not sure I'm seeing a huge difference. It's been that way for a long while. The swim team, the ski club, the outdoor club, the hiking group, the queer motorcyclists—it's like volleyball. I have friends who were part of the volleyball league in the 1990s. That's still most of their social network. The volleyball league folded decades. You know. Badminton, <laughs> there's all of these different bowling, of course, board game groups. There's all kinds of stuff. And that's how you get a social network for the most part. It sounds
1: so contrary to the type of a the description of a perfect gay life on media.
2: <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah, there's not a lot of coverage of it. You don't see a lot of volleyball teams in gay social media, that's for sure.
1: No, yeah. to be a happy gay, you have to have washboard abs and be able to. Go dancing all night long and travel the world. (laughs) Travel the world.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And and until you actually get a chance to sit down with some of those people who have washboard abs and you realize that it doesn't seem to be the road to happiness. You know, more often than not, they're anxious about possibly losing the washboard abs or wondering why it is that all the people, anybody pays attention to is their washboard abs. And the fact that they're actually a human being behind those gets lost.
1: Washboard abs disappear eventually. We know this from personal experience.
0: It was <laughs> <laughs> that one day I had him.
1: <laughs> There's a chapter in your book where you talk about Quentin Crisp. I never heard these this quote before, but you say, he said, fashion is what you adopt when you don't know who you are. And I Ooh. think that you mentioned when you reached out to us, and I think this is very, I agree with you that this is very poignant for the LGBTQ community, especially gay men and maybe drag queens because we're told this is what fashion is and if you don't have this you're not fashionable but then all of a sudden we all look the same we all nobody's unique and nobody's really sort of expressing their true selves they're expressing what someone has decided is the color of the season the style of the season can you elaborate on that please
2: yeah i mean crisp said that fashion and style are regarded by most people as synonyms and he said they're not they're antonyms they're opposites. Fashion is something developed by people who don't know you and do not care about you. And the idea is that you will erase your individuality to fit into their vision of what a person should look like or right. where. Style, he argued, is the exact opposite. It's about identifying what it is that's most unique about you and bringing that to the fore rather than trying to cut it off. So he said, if you're tall, wear heels. If you're short, wear flats. And really make your uniqueness, bring it front and center. And that's how you become an individual. That's how you become who you actually are. Crisp himself was very nonconforming, an unusual guy who dressed in a very flamboyant style in a time in England and in America when he moved, that most people would say, that's not just ill-advised, it's dangerous. And it turned out that that made his life he really is, and his writing really is about how to be an individual in a society that doesn't really much like individuals.
1: And I would, I would guess that for a lot of people, if they created their, if they gravitated to expressing themselves authentically with their style, that they might not necessarily be paying a premium to subsidize that style, to, to make that style happen for them, like, the, like you do with the fashion trends of the time.
2: That's right. I mean, because if it's your style, it's probably your style this year and next year, for one thing. So you don't have to throw everything out and replace it. But also there isn't the sort of, this is the latest thing, therefore it costs twice as much as as it actually cost to produce last year.
1: (laughs)
0: Well, I also would add that people who have their own personal style are people who get comfortable with who they are. They know how they can dress or what they do to themselves to look and feel good. And really, that's what body positivity is really about, is yeah. I am happy with the body that I'm in, and I know how to put things on it that make me feel confident, that make me feel sexy, that make me feel desirable. Whether that's what social media or the fashion industry says you should or, or be like, that's really that's really feeding our soul. Then we can shed all of those beliefs that we aren't good enough because we feel happy about who we are. When you walk out the house and you feel sexy, no matter what you're wearing, then your level of confidence goes way up. And you you just, I think you have a better outlook on on where it is you're going, who you're going to meet, the kind of conversations you're going to have. You're just a better person entering a different space.
2: Yeah. And if you're going out, In effect, dressing or acting in a way to hide something about yourself, there's always the possibility that people are going to figure it out. They're going to see through the disguise. Whereas if you bring it out and put it on display, nobody can say, Oh, you're like this. It's obvious to everyone. It's like it's a silly thing to be confronted on. Yeah. You know, one of the things people are often who are very socially anxious and social anxiety, I think, is more prominent amongst gay men, at least, probably other LGBTQ populations as well, but fewer studies. Social anxiety seems to be quite prominent amongst gay men. And one of the big things that people are worried about is people are going to find out something. And, and, And the big advice is tell them. This is one reason it appears that coming out seems to be psychologically healthy for people, even though once you're out, it actually exposes you to potentially more discrimination. You would think Mm -hmm. it'd be psychologically healthier not to come out. Turns out that doesn't seem to be the case Mm -hmm. because you no longer worry. Oh, people are going to find out that I'm gay. Like they already know. You already told them you're wearing a button, whatever.
0: Right. I think that's part of the reason why we've, Really adopted, especially over the last few years, this expression of come out about your money because Uh. so many people are hiding behind the things that they buy or where they live or what the displays of life. And they're hiding where they're at, they're truly at financially because they don't want people to know. And that is a recipe for disaster, as we know from personal experience. Come out about yourself, be your, be your true self. And that's, you know, it's it's a message that our community keeps preaching. You know, you do you, be yourself, be authentic. And yet it seems like we struggle with actually doing it in all aspects of our lives.
2: Yeah, I think that that's true. I think there's sort of a surface idea sometimes, you know, you be you. But what that means is you be a gay man who is exactly like every other gay man.
1: Right. We got to figure out exactly who we are. And I think that's a challenge that a lot of people have. They haven't given themselves the opportunity to figure out exactly who they are because before they came out, they felt they had to hide every aspect about themselves and they had to conform to what mom and dad expected of them in society in general. And then you jump into, and this is a challenge that David and I had, then you jump into the queer community, gay community for, for us, and we felt like, okay, well, this is what it looks like to be a happy, successful, good gay. This is the prescription I've got to follow. And you know, we, we attribute us sort of trying to live up to that expectation in part for our financial problems that we had decades ago because we're trying to fuel our soul with things that weren't actually fueling our soul.
2: Yeah. I mean, and partly it's a time-limited effort, but but even within that limited time when you can do it because you still have some credit on the credit card or, or, or whatever, doesn't actually work that well. Indeed, it only magnifies the anxiety. Mm-hmm. The more you run away from dogs, the more afraid of dogs you're going to get. And the more you run away from exposing who you are, including your financial circumstances, the more fearful that's going to be, the more you're going to fear exposure or people finding out, oh, not quite as successful as we thought. Right. You know?
0: Right. So- I think the foundation of this discussion came from this idea of the title of your book of how to be miserable. So is there a way for us to stop being miserable? I guess that's the hope we want out there, right? Because we started off with the discussion with this idea that we are in a day and age where we have all of the things that make life easier, more successful, more abundant. We have climbed the Maslow's hierarchy of needs for the vast majority of people. Again, there are some that still struggle with it, but for the vast majority of us. So how do we get to that point where we're no longer focused on being miserable, we're focused on being happy?
2: Well, one of the things that I, I talk about is this idea that we spend Virtually all of our time thinking, what will make me happier in the future? This is what hedonic forecasting is all about. Like, what will I like to have for lunch? Who will I like to marry? Big and small. All of our decisions are based on this. And I suggest that there are, there are two boxes. That's one box and we've really explored that box, but there's another box sitting in the corner of everybody's life. And that box is like how to be miserable. And nobody looks at it because they think, well, I'm not interested. I don't, I don't want it. I suggest to everyone. I really do believe, it sounds facetious, but it's not. I really believe that this is an exercise that almost anybody can benefit from to sit down 20 minutes, turn off the TV, get off social media, take out a pen and paper and ask as open-hearted as you can, what if it was actually my mission to feel worse? What would I do? Like, let's say I could win 10 million bucks if by next Thursday I was miserable. What are some good strategies to do that? And just brainstorm and brainstorm and fight off that voice saying, But I don't really want this. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 20 minutes. How bad can it be? You've wasted 20 minutes doing worse things in your life. So do that. And then ask yourself when you're finished, you know, you might find that it, you go on for longer than 20 minutes. Look, look at it and say, How many of those things am I already doing? And what we'll often discover is that we are behaving, we are governing our lives as though it was our mission to be miserable. I know that if I want to be miserable, I don't exercise, I don't see my friends, I don't call people up, I eat crap food. These are great strategies, if that's my goal. And I can still, even at this advanced stage, find myself falling into that and then realizing, wait a minute, I'm living my life as though this was my mission. The other aspect of that is that every answer you come up with is like a stone in a river. And if you turn that stone over, you'll discover a way to feel happier in your life. You know, feel miserable. Oh, I would isolate. Ah, what does that tell you? Oh, I guess being around other people at least some of the time, not obsessively, but at some of the time. Good idea. Oh, I would eat crap food. Oh, so eating better. You know, every answer you you develop turns out to be really a path towards happiness. That's one of the the main things. And then I would say, kill the revolution. Don't try to change everything. Just identify one thing. Work on that.
0: I wonder, as you were talking about that, writing your list out of all of the things, I wonder how many of us would write out things that are something that we're already doing, but to a greater degree, right? We would say mm. getting drunk every yeah. night or drinking more, right? We would yeah. write those things down or, you know, like you said, isolating myself from my friends. Well, is that just a larger degree of something that we're already doing? Because I think that's probably where we go already. We think, okay, what what things have I done in my life that make me feel bad? And maybe some of those are the ones that we need to turn over quickly. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of this boring old idea of the middle path, you know, moderation in all things, including moderation. Yeah, I mean, you have, you have a glass of wine with dinner most nights. Fine, whatever. So long as you don't have a family history where this is a slippery slope leading to really bad places, whatever, fine. But, you know, those times when you've gotten into going out every night and getting quite plastered every night, how, how was that for you? oh, well, that would be a road to misery and finding a way to put the brakes on that would be better. And that's why I
1: love your book. The full title is How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use. Because it almost comes across as comical in some of your your writing that, like, oh, if I do more of this, it'll make me even more miserable. Well, who would do that? Well, but I am doing that, or at least I'm doing it to a degree. It's almost kind of like, and it's entertaining and comical in, in, in that way. And so I think it's a very revolutionary way for people to think, because very often they think, you know, especially this time of year, beginning of a new year, we're going to com- be completely brand new people. And I'm just going to do the opposite, immediately, the opposite of everything I've, I've always been doing. And that's actually not the way to handle the
2: situation. Yeah. And the reality is we, we know how that's going to go. You're not going to do that. Yeah. You so by February, we, we are who we were. <laughs>
1: yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. This is I think a great angle for our community to look at their happiness and as well as the happiness that they're getting from not only the decisions that they're making, but more specifically with their spending, things they're buying, the way they're using their money. Where can our listeners get your book and where can they connect with you online?
2: My books are on Amazon, so just type in Randy Patterson a one T in Patterson. I can't tell you. How many times I've had to tell people that because I can't find you. At any rate, on Amazon, the Assertiveness Workbook, most recently in a second edition, How to Be Miserable, How to Be Miserable in Your Twenties, another book, all available on Amazon, and my own website, randypatterson.com. I also have a psycho, like an educational website, most of the courses for therapists, but some for the general public, including one called How to Buy Happiness at psychology salon.teachable.com.
1: Well, thank you so much for reaching out to us and for sharing your time with our listeners. I think they'll really appreciate this.
2: Oh, well, you're very welcome.
1: Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com.
0: Thank you, Dr. Patterson, for joining us again on this episode. We really appreciate you sharing your unique insight with us, helping more in our community understand how they can live happier and more fulfilling lives.
1: To our listeners and viewers, thank you for listening or watching another episode of the Queer Money Podcast. Here's your takeaway from this episode. Do as Dr. Patterson suggests and spend 20 minutes making a list of all the things you'd have to do to be a more miserable person. Like if you were going to win $10 million to become more miserable, what would you have to do? Then use the opposite of what you list as the prescription for what your true happiness actually entails. Then to possibly win a free copy of Dr. Patterson's book, join the Queer Money Podcast email list using the link in your podcast player.
0: Finally, join us later this week when we talk about the rumor that we are closing the LGBTQ plus wage gap. And then next Tuesday, when we interview George Perlov from Open for Business on the most inclusive LGBTQ cities around the world, a good topic for retirement planning. Have a great week.